Well, welcome to Reading Through the New Testament. This is uh, your happy host, Pastor Spencer, and I'm so glad that you joined us this week. This is week 12, March 20th, for the week of March 20th. Um, here as we read through the New Testament here as a church here at MNBC. Um, this week we're reading Luke chapter 12 through Luke chapter 16. So we're right in the thick of, of uh, the gospel of Luke. And we're excited as we are traveling with Jesus now in the in the Gospel of Luke. We are journeying towards Jerusalem. We're journeying towards Jerusalem, walking towards Jerusalem, uh, because Jesus Christ, our Savior, knows that his time has come near to be taken up, we read, um, which is a wonderful way that Luke puts it, because uh, Luke, um, perhaps... Not, not the only he's not the only one who emphasizes this, but he does have a a special emphasis, doesn't he, upon the ascension of Jesus, that the Jesus who was on earth, the same Jesus who was crucified, has now been raised and has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and he is active not only during his ministry on earth, but the book of Acts is highlighting to us that he's also active now in his ascended role at the right hand of God the Father. So, Luke here, as we've been reading the Gospel of Luke, we've seen Jesus' birth and the details there. We've seen um, his early ministry. We've uh, walked with him and, and listened to his statements. We've seen Peter already confess that Jesus is the Christ of God. And then, beginning in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 51, we read that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to be taken up. And this brings us up now to where we're at now in chapter 12, um, because we're in the midst of a section here where Jesus is teaching, he's warning and healing, and he's speaking parables on the way to Jerusalem. And uh, that is very important for us to remember as we're reading the Gospel of Luke this week and until we get to Jerusalem in chapter 19 is all of the things that we're reading, uh, all of the stories, all of the parables, all of the uh, healings, it's very important for us in our minds to never forget that Jesus is doing these on the way to Jerusalem. It's so important because, again, Luke is going to remind us about Jesus' journey again in Luke chapter 13, uh, verse 22 where he's going to bring up again to us, as he had brought up to us earlier in chapter 9, verse 51. But in Luke chapter 13, verse 22, he brings up again and it says, And he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So, obviously, Luke wants us to have this in mind, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension on the way uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, again, also remember as as another thing to remember again is as you're reading all of these, um, think about how each of these uh, parables and uh, what Jesus says, what he does, how they would um, give certainty to Theophilus and to the early readers of this gospel about the factual nature of Christianity, that it is not simply a good story, but it is a true one and factual and historical um, and verifiable based upon all of the evidence and eyewitness testimony. Um, so think about that as well as you're reading. And also, remember, uh, Luke is writing to a Gentile audience. Um, why would a Gentile want to follow a Jewish man who was rejected by his fellow Jews to a large extent? Um, and that is another thing that Luke is trying to argue here. This is why. Because Jesus came not simply to save Israel, but to save the whole world and to be the Savior of all men who will come to him. So in Luke chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 21, we have Jesus, the first end of the first uh, section from 951 through uh, this time when Jesus here is teaching, he's warning, he's healing, uh, he speaks parables on the way to Jerusalem. Then in chapter 13, verse 22, we have the beginning of a second section here on the way to Jerusalem, uh, where we're told again that Jesus is walking here, heading this way, uh, but now he speaks about the narrow door, he laments over Jerusalem, he heals on the Sabbath, um, he teaches and gives parables at a banquet, he laments over Jerusalem's unbelief. Um, 
He speaks about the cost of discipleship and speaks about God's love and for sinners. And really what he's, in some ways, what he's talking about as well is what it looks like to enter the kingdom of God that he's come to bring and what kind of kingdom that is. And he's going to give in this section some of the most powerful parables that we read, particularly the parable of the prodigal son, which may be alongside of the Good Samaritan parable that we've already done, uh, the two of the most famous or maybe the most famous parables that we know of uh, that Jesus uh, spoke. Um, And so Luke is giving those to us, and they're very powerful teaching tools, very powerful message that Jesus is conveying uh, through these parables. Okay, so as we're journeying to Jerusalem with Jesus, we want to see what we can grasp as we read this, as we think about it, and as we see what Jesus has to say to us um, in this portion of his word. So I want to give you again, as we've always done, a few things to think about as you read through Luke chapter 12 through chapter 16 uh, this week. Uh, First of all, um, I want to talk about with you the parable of the rich fool, which is given to us in Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 13 through 21. The parable of the rich fool. Remember, this guy goes and builds barns and um, thinks he's going to store up all of his worldly wealth, uh, but his soul is actually required of him. And here's some helpful thoughts from J.C. Ryle about this parable, uh, because um, just like um, they needed in Jesus's time, so we today need need this parable, which helpfully um, it serves as a warning and a call to refocus and reorient our minds to the things that really matter, the invisible things, not the things of this world that we tend to think are valuable but to the things that really are valuable, the things that Christ tells us are valuable. J.C. Ryle says this about this section of Scripture. The passage we have read now affords a singular instance of man's readiness to bring the things of this world into the midst of his religion. We are told that a certain hearer of our Lord asked him to assist about his temporal affairs. Master, he said, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. He probably had some vague idea that Jesus was going to set up a kingdom in this world and to reign upon earth. He resolves to make an early application about his own pecuniary matters. He entreats our Lord's arbitration about his earthly inheritance. Other hearers of Christ might be thinking of a portion in the world to come. This man was one whose chief thoughts evidently ran upon this present life. How many hearers of the gospel are just like this man? How many are incessantly planning and scheming about the things of time, even under the very sound of the things of eternity? The natural heart of man is always the same. Even the preaching of Christ did not arrest the attention of all his hearers. The minister of Christ in the present day must never be surprised to see worldliness and inattention in the midst of his congregation. The servant must not expect his sermons to be more valued than his master's. Let us mark in these verses what a solemn warning our Lord pronounces against covetousness. He said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. It would be vain to decide positively which is the most common sin in the world. It would be safe to say that there is none at any rate to which the heart is more prone than covetousness. It was this sin which helped to cast down the angels who fell. They were not content with their first estate. They coveted something better. It was this sin which helped to drive Adam and Eve out of paradise and bring death into the world. Our first parents were not satisfied with the things which God gave them in Eden. They coveted and so they fell. It is a sin which, ever since the fall, has been the productive cause of misery and unhappiness upon earth. Wars, quarrels, strifes, divisions, envyings, disputes, jealousies, hatreds of all sorts, both public and private, may nearly all be traced up to this fountainhead. Let the warning which our Lord pronounces sink down into our hearts and bear fruit in our lives. Let us strive to learn the lesson which Paul had mastered when he says, I have learned in whatever state I am therewith to be content, Philippians 4.11. Let us pray for a thorough confidence in God's superintending providence over all our worldly affairs and God's perfect wisdom in all his arrangements concerning us. If we have little, let us be sure that it wouldn't be not that it would be not good for us to have much. 
If the things that we have are taken away, let us be satisfied that there is a needs be. Happy is he who is persuaded that whatever is, is best, and has ceased from vain wishing, and become content with such things as he has. Now that is a, a, a very stark reminder, isn't it? Um, because uh, covetousness is something that um, <clears throat> can be cloaked, can't it? It can be cloaked over, and what I mean by that is um, you can be covetous. In, the, in other words, wanting things more and more and more, desiring to have better things than you have now, and or um, longing for things that you don't have now. And Jesus, that's, that's the 10th commandment, right? You shall not covet. You shall not want or desire or long for or yearn after something that is not yours, that is not rightfully yours. And um, it can be easy to cloak that over as um, healthy ambition or hard work or something like that. And certainly, there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's nothing wrong in, uh, with, um, with uh, you know, putting in a hard day's work or doing our best. There's nothing wrong with... Um, like Paul would say later on in uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 7, he speaks to slaves and says, listen, if you're a slave and you can get your freedom, take advantage of it. But there is a sense, though, at the same time, isn't there, where it can be very easy to use those um, the good examples as a cloak for our covetousness to where we are always really wanting more and more stuff but we cloak it over as everybody looks at us and praises us because we're simply hard workers or whatever. Um, or we don't think about that ourselves. We simply may think, well, I just want to take care of my family, or I just want this for them, or I just want that, or I just need this. But covetousness, greed, is a great sin that you and I struggle with greatly. As he points out, this is the sin that led about the fall of the angels. They desired a different position than the one they gave, that they were placed in, right? The fallen angels. This is the one that helped to drive Adam and Eve out of paradise. It was the sin that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, where he mentions, I didn't know what it was to covet until the commandment told me not to covet. And then all of a sudden, I had all sorts of covetousness, all sorts of things that I was breaking the, the law of God with. We need to remember, like Paul learned, that the Lord has determined our lives, and we need to be content with his control and his superintending uh, overseeing of our lives. This doesn't mean, of course, that we don't work hard or be diligent for the glory of God or to take care of our family. But it does mean that we need to be very careful that we are, um, uh, you know, that we are, are not doing this um, for the wrong reasons. As, as Ryle points out, wars, quarrels, strifes, divisions, envyings, disputes, jealousies, hatreds of all sorts come from this, don't they? Covetousness, uh, desiring things that we have no right to um, and that it, that it is wrong for us to yearn for. Okay, so that's about covetousness. The second thing I want to talk to you about is from Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, um, and this is about Jesus's uh, command about repent or perish. Remember, some people come, we read there in verse one, I guess I can read it to you real quick. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus there is, is calling um, all of us, um, calling these men at this time uh, to repent. And uh, this is a powerful instance that happened in the life of these men of these people, and Jesus is using it as a time to teach them and call all of us back to God in repentance. J.C. Ryle has this to say about this section. The murder of the Galileans mentioned in the first verse of this passage is an event of which we know nothing certain. 
the motives of those who told our Lord of the event, we are left to conjecture. At any rate, they gave him an opportunity of speaking to them about their own souls, which he did not fail to employ. He seized the event as his manner was and made a practical use of it. He bade his informants look within and think of their own state before God. He seems to say, What though these Galileans did die a sudden death? What is that to you? Consider your own ways. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Let us observe, J.C. Ryle writes, for one thing, in these verses, how much more ready people are to talk of the deaths of others than their own. The death of the Galileans mentioned here was probably a common subject of conversation in Jerusalem and all Judea. We can well believe that all the circumstances and particulars belonging to it were continually discussed by thousands who never thought of their own latter end. It is just the same in the present day. A murder, a sudden death, a shipwreck, or a railway accident will completely occupy the minds of a neighborhood and be in the mouth of everyone you meet. And yet these very people dislike talking of their own deaths and their own prospects in the world beyond the grave. Such is human nature in every age. In religion, men are ready to talk of anybody's business rather than their own. The state of our own souls should always be our first concern. It is eminently true that real Christianity will always begin at home. The converted man will always think of his think first of his own heart, his own life, his own deserts, and his own sins. Does he hear of a sudden death? He will say to himself, Should I have been found ready if this had happened to me? Does he hear of some dreadful crime or, of, or deed of wickedness? He will say to himself, Are my sins forgiven? And have I really repented of my own transgressions? Does he hear of worldly men running into every excess of sin? He will say to himself, Who has made me to differ? What has kept me from walking in the same road, except the free grace of God? May we ever seek to be men of this frame of mind. Let us take a kind interest in all around us. Let us feel tender pity and compassion for all who suffer violence or are removed by sudden death. But let us never forget to look at home and to learn wisdom for ourselves from all that happens to others. Let us observe for another thing, J.C. Ryle continues, in these verses, how strongly our Lord lays down the universal necessity of repentance. Twice he declares emphatically, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. The truth here asserted is one of the foundations of Christianity. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us are born in sin. We are fond of sin and are naturally unfit for friendship with God. Two things are absolutely necessary to the salvation of every one of us. We must repent and we must believe the gospel. Without repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, no man can be saved. The nature of true repentance is clearly and unmistakably laid down in Holy Scripture. It begins with knowledge of sin. It goes on to work for sorrow, to work sorrow for sin. It leads to confession of sin before God. It shows itself before man by a thorough breaking off from sin. It results in producing a habit of deep hatred for all sin. Above all, it is inseparably connected with lively faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance like this is the characteristic of all true Christians. The necessity of repentance to salvation will be evident to all who search the scriptures and consider the nature of the subject. Without it, there is no forgiveness of sins. There never was a pardoned man who is also not a penitent. There never was one washed in the blood of Christ who did not feel and mourn and confess and hate his own sins. Without it, there can be no fitness for heaven. We could not be happy if we reached the kingdom of glory with a heart-loving sin. The company of saints and angels would give us no pleasure. Our minds would not be in tune for an eternity of holiness. Let these things sink down into our hearts. We must repent as well as believe if we hope to be saved. Let us leave the subject with solemn inquiry, Ryle continues. Have we ourselves repented? We live in a Christian land. We belong to a Christian church. We have Christian ordinances and means of grace. We have heard of repentance with the hearing of the ear, and that hundreds of times. But have we ever repented? Do we really know our own sinfulness? Do our sins cause us any sorrow? Have we cried to God about our sins and sought forgiveness at the throne of grace? Have we ceased to do evil 
and broken off from our bad habits? Do we cordially and heartily hate everything that is evil? These are serious questions. They deserve serious consideration. The subject before us is no light matter, nothing less than life. Eternal life is at stake. If we die impenitent and without a new heart, we had better never have been born. If we, if we never yet repented, let us begin without delay. For this we are accountable. Repent you and be converted, were the words of Peter to the Jews who had crucified our Lord, Acts 3.19. Repent and pray, was the charge addressed to Simon Magus when he was in the gall of bitterness and bond of iniquity, Acts 8.22. There is everything to encourage us to begin. Christ invites us. Promises of Scripture are held out to us. Glorious declarations of God's willingness to receive us abound throughout the word. There is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. Then let us arise and call upon God. Let us repent without delay. If we have already repented in time past, let us go on repenting to the end of our lives. There will always be sins to confess and infirmities to deplore, so long as we are in the body. Let us repent more deeply and humble ourselves more thoroughly every year. Let every returning birthday find us hating sin more and loving Christ more. He was a wise old saint who said, I hope to carry my repentance to the very gate of heaven. That is so good, isn't it? Uh, Such a reminder to all of us um, about the nature and necessity of true repentance. Um, Repentance is something that... uh, Maybe we don't like to think about, or uh, sometimes I think the word itself also gets, um, oh, how can I say this? Sometimes when we think about repentance, it can come across as a very scary doctrine, a very scary doctrine. And by that, I mean, we think about faith in a good way, but repentance in a way of uh, just um, fear or um as motivated by just fear, or scary, or hard, or costly. And certainly, there is a sense in which fear is motivated by the fear of God, and it is also uh, costly in the sense in which the fruits of repentance call us to break off with sin. Uh, Jesus says, cut off your arm, pluck out your eye. Those kinds of imagery and metaphors are used to describe the nature of true repentance, to change our ways. But repentance, as you probably know, the word itself has the idea of a change of mind, a change of mind. It has to do, first and foremost, not with our external actions, but an inward turning around, an inward change of mind. The actions that we do are the fruits of repentance, but they are not repentance itself. Repentance, like faith, is something um, that it bears fruit. Faith bears fruit, doesn't it? And repentance bears fruit. But by themselves, they are things that no eye can see, necessarily. Repentance is where I turn away from my sin because I see the sickness that I am engaged, the sickness that I have of my sinful heart, my, that produces all of these uh, evil actions, and and I don't want to be that way anymore because it's much better and much happier and better for me, but honoring to God if I turn away from sin and come to Jesus Christ. So repentance is a turning around, a returning, a coming back to God. In fact, one of the key words for repentance in the Old Testament is the word return, The idea you can think about is that we've been somewhere, you know, um, maybe we say, uh, I've been at home, I went to work, now I'm going to return back home. Well, in a sense, we could say, I'm going to to repent, I'm going to return, I'm going to come back home where I was before. That's what repentance is. It is to turn around, to stop going the wrong way, and to run back home into our Father's arms. It is to leave behind these things because we're trusting in the Father and in the Son and in the Spirit. It is to confess sin, to hate it, to be sorry that we've done it, 
to feel shame that we've done it, but also to experience the forgiveness, the grace, the acceptance, the cleansing, the restoration that are given to us by God the Father in his Son, Jesus Christ. So repentance is a key doctrine, and it's something that you and I need to daily practice. Martin Luther, of course, famously said that repentance is to be something that is to that is to happen every day. The whole Christian life is one of repentance. We daily repent. From the moment we wake up, we begin repenting and turning away from our sinful desires and turning our hearts and reorienting and focusing again our minds back upon the true and living God and his ways and his call in our lives. We have to do that every day. We have to repent every day. And perhaps one of the best questions you can ask yourself is, have I repented? But even better than that is, am I repenting every day, right now? Because we don't judge, as I've heard it said, we don't judge our present experience by our past experience. We know who we are right now because we're believing in Jesus and we're turning away from sin. Um, some phrase like that, but the point is, is, is that we need to judge right now. Am I repenting now? Am I believing now? Let us turn and look to him and turn away and leave behind sin and look to God in Jesus Christ. Well, the last thing I want to uh, talk with you about is something that might, I don't know how long this is going to take, but I was so um, moved by a sermon that I saw Spurgeon has preached up on uh, Luke chapter 15 the parable of the prodigal. Um, uh, probably maybe the most famous um, parable Jesus ever spoke. Powerful. And it's right after Jesus has just spoken about the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Jesus here is showing the great joy and love and concern and devotion and compassion that God the Father and Jesus Christ he, the Son of God, have for sinners. And that is the message of the prodigal son, of, uh, of the gracious father who looks here. And so Spurgeon opens up and has a special section where he's just preaching a sermon. He's talking about this whole passage, but uh, it, this sermon is titled, Many Kisses for Returning Sinners or Prodigal Love for the Prodigal Son. It is based off of Luke 15, verse 20. And what he's doing here is he's basing it off this one verse, this one section, which says here in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, the prodigal did. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And so he's basing this all off of that one section and kissed him. What does it mean when the father runs to his son, his prodigal son, and kisses him? Uh, I want to read some of this to you just because this is one of the best things I've ever, I've read in a long time. And so um, you can turn off the the podcast now if you don't want to listen to this. Um, But this is, uh, I I just, I just found this to be powerful. So Spurgeon, Here he is uh, reflecting upon these words, and and think about this this whole story as as you read it. And if you want to print off the sermon, please do so. Um, It might be helpful, and you might be edified as well for doing that, but um, this this right here uh, uh, just helps us think about, just just stop and let's let's soak in the Scripture right now. He says this, um, let me start, let me see here. Okay, I'll start right here in the introduction part. Um, see the contrast. There is the son, scarcely daring to think of embracing his father. This is Spurgeon talking, obviously. Yet his father has scarcely seen him before he has fallen on his neck. The condescension of God towards penitent sinners is very great. He seems to stoop from his throne of glory to fall upon the neck of a repentant sinner. God on the neck of a sinner. What a wonderful picture. Can you conceive it? I do not think you can, but if you cannot imagine it, I hope that you will realize it. 
When a God's arm is about our neck and his lips are on our cheek, kissing us much, then we understand more than preachers or books can ever tell us of his condescending love. The father saw his son. There is a great deal in that word saw. He saw who it was, saw where he had come from, saw the swineherd's dress, saw the filth upon his hands and feet, saw his rags, saw his penitent look, saw what he had been, saw what he was, and saw what he would soon be. His father saw him. God has a way of seeing men and women that you and I cannot understand. He sees right through us at a glance, as if we were made of glass. He sees all our past, present, and future. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. It was not with icy eyes that the father looked on his returning son. Love leaped into them, and as he beheld him, he had compassion on him. That is, he felt for him. There was no anger in his heart towards his son. He had nothing but pity for his poor boy. Who had got into such a pitiable condition? It was true that it was all his own fault, but that did not come before his father's mind. It was the state that he was in. His poverty, his degradation, that pale face of his so wanned with hunger that touched his father to the quick. And God has compassion on the woes and miseries of men. They may have brought their troubles on themselves, and they have indeed done so, but God has compassion on, upon them. It is one of the Lord's, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. We read that the father ran. The compassion of God is followed by swift movements. He is slow to anger, but he is quick to bless. He does not take any time to consider how he, show, how he shall show his love to penitent prodigals. That was all done long ago in the eternal covenant. He has no need to prepare for their return to him. That was done on Calvary. God comes flying in the greatness of his compassion to help every poor penitent soul. On cherub and on cherubim, full royalty he rode, and on the wings of mighty winds came flying all abroad. And when he comes, he comes to kiss. Master Trap says that. Trap, right there, I believe he's a quick timeout. Master Trap, I believe, would be referring to John Trap, who was a famous um, Puritan commentator of Scripture. Um, so that's that's who he's talking about. Spurgeon continues, Master Trap says that if we had read that the father had kicked his prodigal son, we should not have been very much astonished. Well, I should have been greatly, very greatly astonished, seeing that the father in the parable was to represent God. But still, his son deserved all the rough treatment that some heartless men might have given. And had the story been that of a selfish human father only, it might have been written that as he was coming near, his father ran at him and kicked him. There are such fathers in the world who seem as if they cannot forgive. If he had kicked him, it would have been no more than he had deserved. But no, what is written in the book stands true for all time and for every sinner. He fell on his neck and kissed him, kissed him eagerly, kissed him much. And so he, what does this much kissing mean, Spurgeon writes? It signifies that when sinners come to God, he gives them a loving reception and a hearty welcome. If any one of you, while I am speaking, shall come to God, expecting mercy because of the great sacrifice of Christ, this shall be true of you, as it has been true of many of us. He kissed him much. And Spurgeon, just so you know, he's basing this off of a, a margin of the Revised Version, which uh, says that this section not only says that and he kissed him, but he kissed him much, or kissed him earnestly, or eagerly, or often. And so Spurgeon is playing off of this idea that 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 the the father came and didn't simply lay one one kiss upon his son, but kept over and over and over kissing his son, his prodigal son, who's returned. So in this sermon, just so you know, uh, before we keep going, I mean, I, I think you're seeing why this sermon is so good. I hope so already. Um, the love of God. We just talked about the necessary need for repentance in our lives. And I hope that you and I will see as we think about this, why in the world would I not repent with a God like this? And this also, if we're believers in Christ already, this should fuel our continual repentance. Because I don't know if you're like me, I feel like I am a prodigal who has to come back every day 
And, um, and we daily have to come back to him over and over. But you know what? This same welcome is available to us every day. So Spurgeon here is highlighting what is this that he kissed him much, this idea over and over again. What does that mean? Well, he's got uh, a few multiple points here. He says he's, and I'll read them to you. It means much love. It signifies much forgiveness, full restoration, exceeding joy, overflowing comfort, strong assurance, and intimate communion. So here's what he says. First of all, it means much love. He says, it means much love truly felt. For God never gives an expression of love without feeling it in his infinite heart. God will never give a Judas kiss and betray those whom he embraces. There is no hypocrisy with God. He never kisses those for whom he has no love. Oh, how God loves sinners. You who repent and come to him will discover how greatly he loves you. There is no measuring the love he bears towards you. He has loved you before the foundation of the world, and he will love you when time shall be no more. Oh, the immeasurable love of God to sinners who come and cast themselves upon his mercy. He also then talks about not only does it mean much love, but it also means much forgiveness. And this is skipping to the second point of the sermon. He says this eventually, to think that Christ should have washed me from my sins in his own blood, makes me feel my sin the more keenly and confess it the more humbly before God. The picture of this prodigal is marvelously true to the experience of those who return to God. His father kissed him with the kiss of forgiveness, and yet after that the young man went on to say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Do not hesitate then to acknowledge your sin to God, even though you know that in Christ it is all put away. From this point of view, those kisses meant first, your sin is all gone and will never be mentioned any more. Come to my heart, my son. Thou hast grieved me sore and angered me, but as a thick cloud I have blotted out thy transgressions and as a cloud thy sins." As, a, as the father looked upon him and kissed him much, there probably came another kiss which seemed to say, There is no soreness left. I have not only forgiven, but I have forgotten too. It is all gone, clean gone. I will never accuse you of it any more. I will never love you any the less. I will never treat you as though you were still an unworthy and untrustworthy person. Probably at that there came another kiss, for do not forget that his father forgave him and kissed him much to show that the sin was all forgiven. There stood the prodigal, overwhelmed by his father's goodness, yet remembering his past life. As he looked on himself and thought, I have these old rags on still, and I have just come from feeding the swine, I can imagine that his father would give him another kiss, as much as to say, My boy, I do not recollect the past. I am so glad to see you that I do not see any filth on you or any rags on you either. I am so delighted to have you with me once more that, as I would pick up a diamond out of the mire and be glad to get the diamond again, so do I pick you up. You are so precious to me. This is the gracious and glorious way in which God treats those who return to them. As for their sin... He has put it away so that he will not remember it. He forgives like a God. Oh, wow. Okay. <sighs> yeah. Uh, let's see what I'm trying to think about where to keep reading here. I mean, there's, there's so much uh, good stuff. He says again, the third point. <sighs> These repeated kisses meant next full restoration. The prodigal was going to stay, say to his father, Spurgeon writes, Make me as one of thy hired servants. In the far country he had resolved to make that request, but his father with a kiss stopped him. By that kiss his sonship was owned. By it the father said to the wretched wanderer, You are my son. He gave him such a kiss as he would only give to his own son. I wonder how many here have ever given such a kiss to anyone. There sits one who knows something of such kisses as the prodigal received. 
That father's girl went astray, and after years of sin, she came back worn out to die at home. He received her, found her penitent, and gladly welcomed her to his house. Ah, my dear friend, you know something about such kisses as these, and you, good woman, whose boy ran away, you can understand something about these kisses too. He left you, and you did not hear of him for years, and he went on in a very vicious course of life. When you did hear of him, it well nigh broke your heart, and when he came back, course of, and when he came back, you hardly knew him. Do you recollect how you took him in? You felt that you wished that he was a little bo- the little boy you used to press to your bosom, but now he was grown up to be a big man and a great sinner. Yet you gave him such a kiss and repeated your welcome so often that he will never forget it, nor will you forget it either. You can understand that this overwhelming greeting was like the father saying, My boy, you are my son. Despite all that you have done, you belong to me. However far you have gone in vice and folly, I own you. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. In this parable, Christ would have you know, poor sinner, that God will own you if you come to him confessing your sin through Jesus Christ. He will gladly receive you, for all things are ready against the day you return. Okay, so he talks again as well about the fact that this kiss, uh, the full restoration showed that the prayer, his prayers were answered, his privileges uh, were restored. He was given such wonderful things. And then he says the next point is that not only was he given much love, much forgiveness, full restoration, but he was also these many kisses that the father keeps kissing the prodigal son, representing God welcoming us sinners. He says it it reveals exceeding joy, the father's exceeding joy. He says this, the father's heart is overflowing with gladness. And he cannot restrain his delight. I think he must have shown his joy by a repeated look. I will tell you the way I think the father behaved towards his son who had been dead but was alive again, who had been lost but was found. Let me try to describe the scene. The father has kissed the son and he bids him sit down. Then he comes in front of him and looks at him and feels so happy that he says, I must give you another kiss. Then he walks away a minute, but he is back again before long, saying to himself, Oh, I must give him another kiss. He gives him another, for he is so happy. His heart beats fast. He feels very joyful. The old man would like the music to strike up. He wants to be at the dancing, but meanwhile he satisfies himself by a repeated look at his long-lost child. Oh, I believe that God looks at the sinner and looks at him again and keeps on looking at him, all the while delighting in the very sight of him when he is truly repentant and comes back to his father's house. The repeated kiss meant also a repeated blessing. For every time he put his arms around him and kissed him, he kept saying, Bless you. Oh, bless you, my boy. He felt that his son had brought a blessing to him by coming back, and he invoked fresh blessings upon his head. O sinner, if you did but know how God would welcome you, and how he would look at you, and how he would bless you, surely you would at once repent and come to his arms and heart and find yourself happy in his love. Okay, we'll stop there for that section. Um, uh, that, That to me is, that was one of the most powerful sections, the exceeding joy that God has in us when we come back to him, his great love and joy. He also talks about this, this points to the overflowing comfort as the father here welcomes his son. He says, this poor young man in his hungry, faint and wretched state, having come a very long way, had not much heart in him. His hunger had taken all energy out of him. And he was so conscious of his guilt that he had hardly the courage to face his father. So his father gives him a kiss, as much as to say, Come, my boy, do not be cast down. I love you. Oh, the past, the past, my father, he might moan, as he thought of his wasted years. But he had no sooner said that than he received another kiss, as if if his father said, Never mind the past. I have forgotten all about that. This is the Lord's way with his saved ones. 
Their past lies hidden under the blood of atonement. The Lord saith by his servant Jeremiah, The iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and if there shall be none, and the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found out, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. But then perhaps the young man looked down on his foul garments and said, The present, my father, the present, what a dreadful state I am in. And with another kiss would come the answer, Never mind the present, my boy. I am content to have thee as thou art. I love thee. This, too, is God's word to those who are accepted in the Beloved. In spite of all their vileness, they are pure and spotless in Christ. And God says of each one of them, Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore, though in, my, though in thyself thou art unworthy, through my dear Son thou art welcome to my home. Oh, but the boy might have said, The future, my father, the future! What would you think if I should ever go astray again? Then would come another holy kiss, and his father would say, I will see to the future, my boy. I will make home so bright for you that you will never want to go away again. But God does more than that for us when we return to him. He not only surrounds us with tokens of his love, but he says concerning us, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. Furthermore, he says to each returning one, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. You see here how much the Lord loves his people. Overflowing comfort. And then there's, of course, strong assurance um, about all of his love. And then he also talks about intimate communion. And he, he uh, Spurgeon points out that he did it before the family fellowship, before table communion, before the public rejoicing, and before the meeting with the elder brother. I mean, that's uh, such a wonderful, such a wonderful uh, sermon to remind us about um, about God's great love. Um, let's close here um, with Spurgeon here, this last section. He says this was given before the meeting with the elder brother, this welcome. He says, If the prodigal had known what the elder brother thought and said, I should not have wondered at all if he had run off and never come back at all. He might have come near home and then, hearing what his brother said, have stolen away again. Yes, but before that could happen, his father had given him the many kisses. Poor sinner, you have come in here and perhaps you have found the Savior. It may be that you will go and speak to some Christian man, and he will be afraid to say much to you. I do not wonder that he should doubt you, for you are not in yourself as yet a particularly nice sort of person to talk to. But if you get your father's many kisses, you will not mind your elder being a little hard upon you. Occasionally I hear of one who wishes to join church saying, I came to see the elders, and one of them was rather rough with me. I shall never come again. What a stupid man you must be. Is it not their duty to be a little rough with some of you, lest you should deceive yourselves and be mistaken about your true state? We desire lovingly to bring you to Christ, and if we are afraid that you really have not yet come back to God with penitence and faith, should we not tell you so like honest men? But so, but suppose that you really have come, and your brother is mistaken. Go and get a kiss from your father, and never mind your brother. He may remind you how you have squandered your living, painting the picture even blacker than it ought to be, but your father's kisses will make you forget your brother's frowns. If you think that in a household of faith you will find everyone amiable and everyone willing to help you, you will be greatly mistaken. Young Christians are often frightened when they come across some who, from frequent disappointment of their hopes, or from a natural spirit of caution, or perhaps from a lack of spiritual life, perceive but coldly those upon whom the Father has lavished much love. If that is your case, never mind these cross-grained elder brethren. Get another kiss from your Father. Perhaps the reason it is written, he kissed him much, was because the elder brother, when he came near him, would treat him so coldly and so angrily refused to join in the feast. So, 
I think that sermon right there, and like I said, you could read it, and I know I've read a, a very large extent of it, but that helps us to grasp the heart of God. And I think that is the heart that Jesus was intending to convey, not only in the parable of the prodigal, but in that one where he's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, uh, where we see the compassion of Jesus over sinners in Jerusalem whenever they refuse to believe. Um, And also, whenever we, we talk about repentance and faith, we should also pair that with the fact of who our God is. As Spurgeon says, he forgives like a God does. And this is who our God is. So as you read the passages of Scripture this week from Luke chapter 12 through chapter 16, I hope that you will know the love of the Father and of his Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray and I hope that you and I, as we read the Bible, will know this Father more and more, that we will repent every day, and come back into his loving arms, and know his heart beats for us with such great love that how could we stay away from him? Let us leave behind sin, the sin that so closely entangles us and trips us up, and look forward to the author and the finisher of our faith who was given to us by our beloved Father, uh, who, who loves us and gave his Son for us. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for uh, listening to this. I hope it's been encouraging to you, and I look forward to being with you next week as we read more of the the New Testament of Luke's gospel and uh, as we study the scriptures and see more and more of who Jesus Christ is to us and for us. Take care, and God bless.